0: Uh, Thank you for waiting. Uh, We had some traffic issues, but everybody's here. Um, Of course, we're having a conversation today titled Reimagining Equity in the Art World in 2020. Um, It's being presented by Art Table. So thank you to the Art Table folks for organizing. Our podcast program here at the fair is sponsored by Withers Worldwide. So thanks to that sponsor, as well as Inside Weather, which is sponsoring our podcast lounge. I'm going to let our moderator introduce our panelists uh, but I will introduce our moderator Heidi Robin who is a curator at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Uh, so Heidi do you want to? Take-
1: thank you so much Kamal and just reiterating thanks to everybody here in our audience. Um, Tracy Friedman our host from Art Table thank you so much and thank you to Kamal for organizing this. Jim Voorhees as well who I know has been involved in a lot of these so many thanks. Um, Today with me, I have three incredible local artists here to talk about reimagining equity. Um, So I'd love for each of them actually to introduce themselves if they feel comfortable doing so um, and for our listeners. And just a note that apologies to everyone for getting started late. Many of us were held up because of the Women's March, so also expressing solidarity with everybody at the march, those that were able to attend before coming here, um, and those that are not here because they're there. So thank you. Um, so maybe we'll start out. We have Indira Allegra right here to my left, Erica Dieman and Catherine Bettney, and maybe we'll start with Indira.
2: Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Can everyone hear me okay? Awesome. Uh, My name is Indira Allegra. I do a lot of performance, sculpture, and installation work.
3: really interested in themes of tension and haunting. (laughs) Hello everyone, thank you for coming. Can you hear me okay? Wonderful. Um, My name is Erica Dieman and I am a visual artist. I um, work mainly with photography and I'm thinking about the portrait and the historical present and what lives within the portrait.
4: Um, I'm Catherine Vetney, and um, I'm a painter and a sculptor, and I think a lot about themes of consumerism and um, normative womanhood and how those themes come together in objects. Um, My work is actually on view at the fair. It's in booth B9 at Catherine Clark Gallery, so you can go check it out.
1: Thank all of you. Thank you so much. Um, So our panel discussion today, of course, titled Reimagining Equity, Um, the four of us actually had a chance to meet up in advance of the panel and try to discuss some things that were of interest to us around this idea. Um, Obviously, it's a big topic, and we're not going to be able to be remotely comprehensive in our approach today. But I think something that really grew out of our initial conversation together um, was really starting at a baseline of inequity and thinking about... The art world at large and where equity can play into that equation. Um, I think everyone here, we're in a fair context, of course, um, which is a very commercial arts context. But really within every arts context, whether you're in an institution, a nonprofit, um, whether you're an independent artist showing your work, uh, equity plays into every single part of that. Um, And so something that really emerged as core to one of the topics we wanted to approach today was to talk about what equity means for artists and around artistic support. Um, Foremost among that, I think we were really interested in thinking about where artists can get support around equity today. Um, We drew a couple of examples that maybe we could start with. Um, One of them, of course, in this country being WAGE, which stands for Working Artists in the Greater Economy. When we're thinking about equity, economics is really important. And it's really the first step towards creating some kind of a baseline for artistic practice within certainly institutions and in general, ways for artists to be able to support themselves if they don't have the resources to be within an institution, and way that institutions can be held accountable to make sure that artists are receiving their dues for their labor, for their work, um, beyond purely exposure, which really today and really never has been enough. Um, so maybe starting there I'm curious to my panelists if um, you know we talked about a couple of different examples we were interested in citing beyond wage if there are other examples of ways that artists can find resources around equity today
2: um, may I yes. <laughs> All right. Please. Um, so I I kind of prepared this like constellation of um, constellation of resources and quotes that I think relate to a future which is designed around like economies of generosity and care for people. Um, So I'll start first uh, by quoting an article in Hyperallergic. Athena Krista is a member of MoMA's local 2100 bargaining committee. She said in an interview While the US has always been aggressively anti-labor, especially since the Reagan era, an organized art world has been made to seem not just impossible, but unnecessary. Arts workers are often expected to make personal and financial sacrifices for the honor of working in a prestigious institution. It is true, we are privileged to have the opportunity to work, do work we are passionate about, But that often comes with a price paid in undercompensated and sometimes uncompensated labor. If your job is reframed as a passion project, being dissatisfied with unfit labor conditions thus signals a personal failure. If you really loved your job, you wouldn't care about being unpaid. So I think that this represents kind of like the, um, sort of the, the first point of departure And then we can move onward, I think, um, by invoking Bell Hooks and her... I thought it was the ethic of love, but when I went back, it's actually... Or ethic of care, but when I went back, I realized it's an ethic of love that she's talking about. And she says, The culture of domination relies on the cultivation of fear as a way to ensure obedience. In our, our society, we make much of love and say little about fear yet we are all terribly afraid most of the time. Yet we do not question why we live in states of extreme anxiety and dread. Fear promotes the desire for separation, the desire not to be known. When we are taught that safety lies with sameness, then difference will appear as a threat. When we choose love, we move against fear and separation. The choice to love is a choice to connect and to find ourselves in the other. And I like that as a, um, a second stop in the train that we're on, um, moving toward a more equitable situation because it means that we must no longer be ashamed to, as artists, identify as workers. So if we think about the language that is used to describe folks who are making the art ecology possible, functionable, we have the art professionals, right? So that's like the curators and folks who are writing about um, art, galleries, whatnot. Then we have art workers, which are typically considered to be, you know, the preparator and packing genius uh, slant, right? But then the artist is sort of isolated, undistinguishable, undefined. And actually, if we all recognize that we are workers and we all recognize that we are professionals, then perhaps we can move this Um, conversation forward a bit faster so I think I'll I'll pass it on from there.
3: To pick up on something that you were just saying um, which is talking about support and fear I think that you know I think about the weakness that you feel in accepting support and how we need to kind of work through that and kind of accept that we need these support structures and thinking about the politics of support and thinking about how institutions you know should be political and should be thinking about the artists and becoming friends with the artists, so we can build a relationship where the institution cares about the artist, and therefore the goals of the artists are reflected through the institution and I think what where we are now, and I think about two thousand and sixteen and this movement very swift movement because of the mirror that was placed into the art world, which was reflected by this wider society, that the institution has to think about the inside of the institution as opposed to just the external.
4: Yeah, and that makes me think of also sort of a trend I notice where um, the artwork Seems to be really um, prized and supported, and yet the bodies and the people behind that work—it's considered, you know, almost undeserving of the type of institutional support that the that the art objects bring. And I think, Indira, as you were saying, you know, it is related to this idea of passion and how this idea that art is a very special type of object. It has very special meaning in our culture that almost makes it excusable to treat the people behind that work and the people caring for the work and even the people curating that work um, and writing about that work and doing the intellectual labor on what this work means. It's almost comes as an excuse to maybe not care for those people behind that type of labor.
2: Yeah, I think that the, The moment of thinking about short-term gains is like, it's so done. Like all of us are, I want to be continuing to make work for the next 30, 40 years. And that is not possible with, and it's not possible for any of us um, to do so by individually subsidizing the entirety of our, you know, practices, right? So it's like everyone has to work together in order for artists to... Have careers which span a generation, in order for galleries to have work to show for multiple generations, in order for people at, um, yeah, in order for museums to really um, hmm, have imaginations which are like flourishing far into the future. And so I think the long term game will require some different strategies than we've been using
1: yeah, and I think what what you're all touching on, and thank you so much, uh, there's a lot there. But I think what um what I'm seeing as a common thread amongst everything that you all shared is something that relates as well to visibility. So currently, the structures of the art world dictate that the artist certainly is is the most visible when they are recognized. Um and they are sort of exalted into this position above. Um, at least from public perception, above the rest of the support structures underneath them, perhaps. Um, But in reality, you know, many institutions hold artists at a distance because of their own understandable priorities and structures. Um, And everybody there is allegedly there to serve the artist, yet they are completely invisible from the process of working with the artist. A lot of that happens behind the scenes, and it's meant to be a finished presentation that's polished and professional and um, really isn't, you know, unless the artist's work has to do with process which of course has a rich history. Um, But in in the exception of that, there's very rarely a case where all of the work and the labor underneath what has caused this thing to come into being is exposed. So I think that's one place, too, where if we could sort of reimagine equity, it would reimagine every single person working within the field of the arts on an equal plane to start. Um, That one kind of skill set or one kind of component is no more exalted than the other and certainly the curator um, these days is maybe even more so than the artist exalted and has expectations set around them um, that are really not quite at the right balance with what it is they're there to do. Traditionally a curator is there to take care as we all know from you know the origins of the term itself and over the history of curatorial practice that's turned into authorship and ownership and in times eclipsing Um, the kind of notoriety over the artist. So I think we, as curators, as artists, and as arts workers writ large, need to sort of rethink where the the point from which we are starting on the different, uh, whether it's an exhibition or a project or anything that we embark on, how can we actually come together in one room and grow something out of that might be one way. Um, I should also just share, maybe as a way to go into the next question, before us coming together today, we also shared a couple of readings. Um, One that Catherine shared was really around this idea of why are artists poor, Um, which was a really fascinating read, because I think it ties very much into what we're talking about as well, that many of the extant structures in place around showing art and supporting artists, at times, equally, are there to hold artists back and to keep them from actually sort of expanding beyond the boundaries of, of what we understand this practice to be. Um, so I'm curious from those of you that work both independently and within institutions in different moments, um, how you felt about that statement and what you think that means regarding equity.
2: Oh, okay. Um, if we're all workers, then we can begin to discuss what one should be paid for different types of services, right? So if it's a commission of an original work, if it's you coming in to read something that you've already written, if it's a solo show or a two-person, Wage is doing a good job here. Um, I think they've been around since 2015 in trying to create a public platform for that kind of information to be shared based on the budget of the institution, right? So like what SFMOMA would pay you would be different from like a smaller gallery, like Control Shift in Oakland, right? Um, However, if we look to our neighbors up north in Canada, they've been unionized since the 1960s. And they were actually the first to institute um, wages four exhibitions, two artists. Um, I did a little bit of research about that, because I'm a nerd. Um, And I just want to give a shout out to other countries internationally which have gotten it together, um, and have active artist unions, which are um, really, I think, setting the pace for what it means to define how our work should be compensated. Um, So you could go to Azerbaijan and go to Denmark, Bulgaria, Iceland, Sweden, Spain, the Netherlands, Ukraine, Latvia, Romania, Slovak. It goes on and on. All of those places are places where if I am contacted to do an exhibition of any kind, I never have to guess. I never have to bring it up as to whether or not I will be paid and how much I will be paid or wonder if we're getting paid the same thing. You know what I mean? Um, and that's profoundly inspiring to know that that framework is already existing in the world. We don't have to recreate the wheel. There's so much that we can learn from organizing internationally. So,
3: Kind of linking into that, it makes me think, well, when I think about the flattening of the structure, it eliminates um, the notions of winner takes all. And, and this kind of maybe not even the art celebrity, but the idea that there is one person who will always be getting the work, the artist as the head, the leader in terms of the income that they earn. And the the society that we live in, I mean, it it is a wide reflection of the society that we live in, that American culture is kind of built upon this winner takes all. and so I think that when, I, when you go through those countries, so many of them are European countries, and there's you know, more socialist leaning countries that believe in structure and support of their communities, whether it be their art community or whether it's just the everyday person on the street.
0: Yeah, and
4: this idea of this sort of winner takes all art world, um, gallery world, outside of the art world, this exists. you know. Um, it also just makes me think of what kinds of um, creative people and artists aren't here today at the fair who, who maybe are not invited to be on a panel, who maybe might not even feel comfortable walking through those doors. And I think that um, that has a lot to do with value and who decides to determine value and the value of objects and the value of the people making those objects. And it doesn't... <laughs> Um, It's not that complicated to see that there's an obvious hierarchy here and that, you know, many signs in our culture all sort of point to this same hierarchy of of economics and sort of who is in charge.
1: I think something that kind of ties back a little bit of what we're all talking about, too, is hierarchy, politics... um, things that you know, we can't necessarily get away from. But in hearing all of your examples, Indira, I think it's really helpful to hear what other places, what other resources we can look to because um, I think when you have a panel like this, reimagining equity, but I don't know why all of you are here, and I'd love to know when we get to the Q&A part, but, but what you're expecting to hear and what you're, I would imagine, you're looking for resources, you're looking for places that we can also go to as other models out there that are, that are successful in at least moving the needle, if not accomplishing something that resembles equity, Um, And so I think, you know, when I was doing a little research into WAGE, they themselves cite CARFAC in Canada, the union that Indira was referring to. Um, But I think what you're getting at too is that the reason why it's happening in Europe, in Canada, Australia, all the other places that Indira mentioned and why it's not happening here, I think goes back to an overall kind of cultural issue in the United States that art is not valued at the highest level, and what I mean by that is governmentally supported enough, right? We have the National Endowment for the Arts, um, and that is one of the only, National Endowment for the Humanities as well. Those are the only real federal level opportunities for the arts, and that means that every single institution in this entire country is competing for that money. And then we have administrations like the one that we have right now that cuts that budget drastically and what that means for all these different institutions. So... For real equity to happen in this country, we need institutional change. We need it at the federal level. Where we can start certainly um, is in our own cities, in our own states, and kind of keep moving the needle upward from there. But um, that's why I do think that wage as at least a baseline for us to try to adopt because it takes all of that other information into account is useful. Um, But I'm also curious, just as California being one of the most liberal places and um, one that does support the arts, what else we can do as a state and as a city here in San Francisco to support our artists? And since we're all based locally, I'm curious if there's anything that you've seen here as examples that have taken that leap, or if there are things that you have experienced that you could feel like you could use more From the institutions you've worked with or, um, yeah, citing examples without maybe naming names. But on the positive side, I can throw out a name that I think is doing an amazing job locally, which is The Lab, I'm sure you're all familiar with. And they're locally, I think the institution that's really brought wage as a standard to the fore and been really vocal about being certified and calling other institutions out for trying to accomplish that. Um, So I just want to throw Dina Beard a bone there and say thank you for setting that example for us locally.
3: I mean, I think about Minnesota Street Project, of course, um, which has allowed so many artists to remain in the city. But I think something that I would definitely like to see is, is access to affordable housing and to think about how we can make our cities available and accessible to artists. Because one of the reasons why people love living in cities is because of the diversity and the art that you have access to by being here. But as we've seen in San Francisco, we have been priced out of the market because another industry has come in which is more desirable and can make more money. And so we need to think about how we can make artists and allow artists, give permission to artists to remain where they can make work. And it's something that I think about. You know, I began making art in San Francisco eight years ago, and I know that I can make art in this city. So I want to remain in this city, but the forces of economics may mean that I have to leave.
2: I mean, I, I think that anything that helps. Poor and low-income people will help artists. Anything that helps parents will help artists. Anything that helps, supports people with disabilities will help artists. It's not so different from... We are all those things. We will always be all those things. So, um, yeah.
1: And maybe that's actually, in and of that, maybe that's the most useful way to think about it, is to stop thinking of ourselves as a whole other category. We're not special. Yeah. (laughs) We're not stop kind of excluding ourselves. I mean, we are a microcosm within many others, um, but I actually think that's a really important point Erica made, too. So many artists that we know want to be here. It's not that they don't want to be here anymore. It's that it's economically prohibitive for them to stay. So what are the ways that we can, both as institutions, as people that care about the arts, um, how can we help make that happen? And I think... Some of it goes to um, hopefully making this other community that is sort of infiltrating, for lack of a better word, our entire city, make them feel actually a part of this community rather than in opposition to it. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes um, that we make as a community here locally is the tension between the technology community and the arts community, while real and while problematic, absolutely, um, it's also an opportunity and one that has not really been successfully harnessed yet to make people within the tech community understand that it's not in opposition, um, but also to hold them accountable for the impact that they are having on our city and in our cultural field, not just artists. Again, teachers, anyone within the service industry, everybody's getting priced out. And for them to want to be in the city as well, part of the reason is the cultural fabric and the way that it can be so much more rich from our artists, from our restaurants, from you know everything that makes the city what it is. So... I think it's about really opening our arms wider, hopefully, and making people feel like they're a part of that and they can contribute in a meaningful way um, without sort of blaming or pointing fingers. Um, though, understandably, tensions, tensions are high. Can I add something? I'm gonna say
2: something I think will be unpopular, but here we go. Um, I don't think it's tech's responsibility to save the arts in San Francisco. I agree with you. Or in any other community. It's not. I'm not mad at somebody who's making $200,000 a year. Get your money. I want someone who is providing childcare to be making that kind of money also. It's about what we value and how we value it. Property managers also, or property owners, also have a part in this. If you are deciding that your apartment is, that market rate for your apartment is gonna be $4,500, that's your decision. You know what I mean? Like, yes, there are, we're living in a, a very complicated economic ecosystem, but I, I do feel that it's um, it's very easy to find social scapegoats for different things and to ignore a larger structure which is creating a problem that all of us are struggling to cope with and um, so I think it's important to talk about tech but I want to caution against um, using them as another kind of scapegoat and I think I'm sensitive to that as, as someone who belongs to many populations that are often scapegoated myself so.
1: I agree with you entirely and um Yeah, I used to work in tech myself, so that's also why I think it's a false binary, and I think that it's so often confused. But I wanted to bring it up because I think it is often where we direct that energy as a community, and that we can probably do a better job of directing that energy within ourselves and also reaching out more as a community and providing inroads, whether it's tech or finance or healthcare or any other sort of segment of the population. So, but thank you, I appreciate that. So I guess some other things that we could think about as well. I mean, Indira alluded to it, and it was something that came up in our conversation. Um, Care, I think, is another major component within equity. Um, We have to care, first of all, that we are in an inequitable place. And we have to think about how we can take better care of each other. I think we were talking about how self-care is such a trendy idea right now and an important one. I'm not here to diss self-care, but I also think that it's more about how we can take better care of each other because I think self-care is bound up within American capitalist values, whereas caring for one another and approaching everything that we do on a daily basis from that point of view first, not just putting me forward first, but everyone else forward first, um, actually ends up benefiting me in the end, so... Um, reorienting care maybe is another way of thinking about it. And I'm, yeah, I know that as artists, you all put so much care into what you do. It is why you do what you do. Um, but I'm also curious just in hearing a little bit more about the care involved in everyone else around what you do. If that makes sense as a
4: question. (laughs) Like
2: how do we show reciprocity to our support networks?
4: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that artists kind of have to depend on a village (laughs) to to keep them going. Um, And I think that a lot of this falls to friends and um, professional mentors that can take a lot of different forms between professionalism and friendship and everything in between, certainly partners, um, family members... Um, but artists do also have to deal with uh, maybe not having support when they want it because there is this sort of um, cultural barrier around art where maybe people don't understand what you're doing, they're afraid to ask questions, they don't think they get to ask questions, they don't want to sound silly. Um, And so I think that can act as a barrier for people who maybe want to give care or, or would if they understood the world a little bit better. And I think just sort of greater ways that that can be sort of broken down, um, making arts, you know, as Indira said earlier, making those, making the arts seem like we're normal people, normal workers um, in a workplace. I think that that would be a big part of ways of accessing more care for artists.
3: I mean, I think about nourishment and how care is nourishing to us all you know coming from the UK it has been an adjustment to see how little care that there is and you can find care and we build care as artists but again going to this larger platform and structure You know, we have to care for each other because no one else will care for us. You know, I think about care in my practice. You know, I'm a collaborator ultimately. Without somebody else, I cannot make my art. So I have to make sure that I have an ethics of care in my practice to enable the opening up of my sitters, my collaborators, and myself to create something that may transform somebody, that might make somebody else care about what they're looking at. I'm interested in, um, not to cut you off,
1: but I'm interested in what you're saying, Erica, around care too. It makes me think, you know, the first kind of half of what we were talking about has to do with economic equity and ways of holding people accountable for that. Might there also be some kind of a code of conduct around care for artists and for arts workers? Um, it feels equally important as the economic side of things to me, because I think we all equally in different moments in our careers within this community have probably been taken advantage of. Our labor has been exploited in one way or another. Um, And I don't just mean, again, economically, but I mean the social interaction that comes from that is also really damaging and problematic. And so if there are ways of Creating some kind of guidelines or resources around how to treat one another within this structure.
3: I mean, I think about care, and to care is to give. And as artists, we are always giving. I think, you know, even not as artists, you like to think that people are still giving. And when you give, there's an integrity to that giving. And there is the opportunity for exploitation. And so, you know, I think about how we give to auctions, how we give to, to support institutions, and how sometimes that can mean that we may give too much, or something may be lost. So thinking about making sure we, we are rewarded for giving and supporting. Um, around the
2: issue of like codes of conduct I know for my mentees I don't ask them to do work for me right like if they need a letter of rec or um, they're freaking out (laughs) about something and need to to message me like that's cool but like keeping, being a person in their life that is keeping a boundary around what the relationship is about. And I think within the art world, so many of our relationships are very mercurial and they're slippery and they're kind of like, yeah, you're my friend, but you're also helping me out with this thing and you're, you know what I mean? And so it's very refreshing, I think, to um, author relationships wherein the boundaries are clear. And um, yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of of joy in that actually to literally create a kind of world that um, we may not have experienced in our careers, but hopefully artists who are much younger will grow to expect that from other people, you know, and pay it forward.
1: I love that because I think also what you're touching on and you mentioned it is you called them mentees. Um, and not, you know, my studio workers or something like that. But I think the the relationship between mentorship is another thing that is probably very often taken for granted in this community Um, and very necessary for everyone, no matter what kind of a worker you might be, Um, that you have a model, someone that you can lean on, someone that you can go to for advice, someone that you can workshop things with, ask questions. Um, I think, you know, what we do in the arts is often so subjective, there's not always, you know, universal, and there probably shouldn't be universal um, ways to approach each one of these different career paths, so I think mentorship is really important, and probably one of the most actionable ways of giving back uh, to the community that Erica was talking about. And
2: paying your studio manager and studio assistant who is a different person and not your mentee.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Perfectly said. Um, well, we're narrowing down a little bit on our time, which seems really fast. So maybe I just will open it back up to each of you if there's any final thoughts and words. We'll definitely open it up to the group. <clears throat> but if there's anything closing, and then we'll we'll take some questions from the audience.
3: You know, one of one of my final thoughts was um, thinking about a young person who wants to embark on an artist's career. And for them to be able to talk to their family, to their parents and say, this is my calling. I want to be an artist. And for the whole thought process to be, this is as much value as being a lawyer or a doctor. And for it, to, for it not to be Seen as a life of struggle, and you know if I could reimagine anything then then that would be it
4: yeah I guess one one clothing one closing thought I had around that um, also makes me think of artists feeling and people in general feeling comfortable advocating for themselves and their needs um, and just. Who they are and what they're interested in and one of the things I'd like to see also I think is a culture that really supports artists saying no you know even when they're not very powerful artists who get to sort of maybe say no to everybody but um, underlings saying no in the workplace and artists saying no and artists asking for what they need and I think that one of the things I'd like to see is a culture where this type of behavior is, is encouraged from people um, who maybe aren't in positions of power. And currently, I think that it's, it's not.
2: Agreed.
1: I think that's great. And I think it can start with those of us that are in higher positions and are able to teach and are able to set an example and an expectation. I think something that I have learned over the years as a curator is when I go to invite an artist to do something or I ask if I can come for a studio visit, any of these kinds of communications, if I'm asking an artist to do anything for me, whether it's you know speak at a group thing, something smaller than is considered an exhibition or anything like that, I always offer them money to do that. Um, that is absolutely labor. It is so much work and it needs to be recognized as such. And I think yet historically sometimes there are places where, oh, but it's just a favor, they would love to, you know, meet and whatever. And even if they're willing to do it for free, that's not the point. And the invitation needs to be front-loaded with the dollar amount, put in writing. This is what we're asking you to do, this is what we're offering you. Um, so that's, I think, one thing that can help, and I certainly hope that those that I work with now know that that's a standard and that that's what we have to do, that's the bare minimum that we have to do. Um, And hopefully feel empowered to do the same and remind themselves, you know, when they're interacting that everything that we're asking anyone else to do for us is work, whether they're willing to do it for free or not. Um, I think that's a good note to end on. So I think for those listening on the podcast that may not be able to hear the audience questions, we'll say, oh, great. We have an extra mic. That's right. Thank you. (laughs) Well, if anyone's willing and would like to come up and ask a question, we'd love love to hear from you.
5: Awesome. Hello. Can I sit down? Yeah. Please. Okay, cool. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, so um, listening to you guys and coming from a place where I am participating in capitalism and I am in tech too, so I help run a venture capital firm, um, it's interesting chatting to you guys because I think that a lot of what you're saying is really um, a symptom of where we're at. Within the apex of current capitalism and social good, Um, and I kind of disagree actually about tech's um, position in how they navigate within the art ecosystem. Given that you know, over the last twenty years, thirty years now, these tech corporations have an amount of power that far exceeds sometimes the GDP of other countries. So you know, Facebook exceeds Spain, for instance. And in a um, sort of mode of production in capitalism where we now only pay attention to the shareholder and don't think about perhaps even public interest capitalism. So super interesting, a couple of weeks ago I was at this event with um, the Prime Minister of Japan and some of his attaché talking about public interest capitalism. And you notice from the 80s, Um, all uh, sort of balance sheets changed. So you no longer thought of labor as an investment or an asset on your balance sheet, you thought it as a liability. And that um, means that uh, what, what we're focused on and primarily still focused on in venture capital, not social capitalism or social venture capital, is the shareholder. And so my question to you guys actually was about what do you think about fractional ownership? Because in terms of engagement, it's potentially an amazing tool for getting people engaged and also providing access and a sense of ownership of your life if you're just the average person in the absence of having a state power or governance system that actually looks after the average person
2: fractional ownership of just to clarify are you talking about artworks intellectual property what are we talking about
5: yeah artworks um, uh, ownership of organizations even imagine if you could be a fractional owner I mean the, the Whitney kind of done this or like you know um, through the, the the support or sponsorship model you know you can get put on as like a supporter if you donate but like how do we in the absence of having federal uh, support, Ooh. Underwrite some of these public institutions that are effectively being gutted, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's part of the question, yeah sorry, can I just fish one yeah last thing yeah with that? yeah because so so the other thing, and you notice this within the collector community, uh, and I asked some of these questions actually to Jeffrey Deitch, uh, and he was not happy with this uh, in front of a lot of people from Milken Institute, which is a lot of people who have a lot of money uh, and there's like a lot of snobbery around the idea of fractional ownership mm-hmm. because it doesn't lend itself to the idea of the shareholder with you in a slightly inefficient market where some people are getting all the value of your career.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Anyway.
1: I have a question to just further to Indira's around you're talking about fractional ownership of an artwork perhaps but yes. what about if you're talking about an organization or an institution yeah, yeah. If you were a shareholder in an institution in that way, wouldn't you expect profit? And what yes. do you do for nonprofit institutions? Or to, to protect that profit not being the driver
5: right. overall? So I think everything scenario. needs to move. So, so what I do at, at a firm is we believe in both. So, so we don't actually just believe in pure giving. We believe in investing in the relationship and what investment means. And I think investment can come from a position of love too um but it can also be a matter of performance too you can have both i think we've like lied to ourselves that you can only have one thing anyway sorry
2: thank you um no it's a big question and there's something about scale that i'm thinking about here as to like what when we think about fractional ownership something as large as, like, the Whitney, does it work, or do... Yeah, I don't know what it looks like in 30 years, 50 years, um, if institutions will be functioning even in the same way, if they will have the same kind of relevance even. I don't know. But I do think that... um, I mean, I think that on the collective level, people try to, but it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult within the current system. I'm going to continue thinking about the question.
1: Yeah, and I, I just want to say I do, I also really need to think about it more, but I really appreciate the question, and I think that... Um, we would all be really well served by thinking about alternative economic models to the ones that exist for arts institutions and artists. And I think that's sort of what we were talking about today. So um, I appreciate that's a lot of food for thought. Complicated.
0: (laughs) Some of you have probably read about, um, as I'm sure many people know, often art is discounted as part of A sale, which um, is challenging for artists, gallerists, and everybody else um, except the collectors. Um, And one of the things that I've been reading about recently is say a collector has extended a discount, let's say that discount is 20%, that rather than, so they get the discount in the moment, but that 20% then becomes what the artist continues to own of that person's work and so when that work comes up for resale, I mean in California we have the, Cal- the Resale Royalty Act which I don't want to get into at the moment, um, but this would be something that would be bigger than just California or even the United States. It would be a worldwide um, pr- uh, procedure in which resale would mean that whatever that discount was the artist would benefit from it later to the percentage that was discounted.
1: Functioning like royalties in some way yeah that's amazing.
0: Anyway just thought about it in terms of this issue of equity and uh, sort of partial ownership. Thank yeah you. And that,
4: oh sorry um yeah, and that that sounds like a version of worker ownership, which is kind of actually where my mind went with with the question is um when when workers can own <laughs> the workplace a part of the workplace that's kind of where my mind goes first I'd have to learn more about the the investment side, um, and this sounds like a model for artists to be kind of having um more of an ownership in their work, which surprisingly you would think they do, and yet there's so many examples that they don't, so.
1: Yeah, it's another interesting way to think about maybe co-op structures. Um, it's kind of what I feel like a version of fractal ownership, right? But if it were maybe less coming from outside of the artistic sphere and more from within as a collective ownership strategy, that could be an interesting model, too. It's good brainstorming.
2: Looks like we have another... <laughs> Yeah. We're talking about it's on
3: just on? okay, just we were talking about models. I wanted to allude to the fact that the performing arts have a lot of unions. We have models for our actors' equity. We've got musicians' unions. We've got payment standards set throughout the performing arts. There was an, a, a very strong movement for a long time by artists' equity up through the 40s, which really kind of fell apart in the 80s with the rise of the art market, for creating similar structures for visual artists. The Artists Resale Royalties Act came out of that. I think that with the drop in union membership, again, back to the systemic thing, we saw a lot of those efforts fall away. I think now might be the time to revisit some of those efforts in the U.S., so thank you for bringing those up. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, and I think... Uh, just to follow on that, because that's a great reminder, but it's also a really great question to say, she's right, it is in performing arts, why not in visual arts? Right. Why doesn't it already exist here? Is it because it's, I would argue, maybe because it's less visible? Um, that in performing arts, you really physically see the labor being performed in front of you, and performance certainly has a whole other kind of element to it. I mean, I know Indira works in performance, um, and yeah, maybe, I don't know if that feels different for you in the way that you organize versus maybe some of your work that is more I think, material.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I think performance art versus performing arts, there's the- Certainly, yeah. Yeah.
1: Fair enough, no, but I guess in terms of visibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all <laughs> I'm <not. laughs>
2: Um I also see some folks in our audience who appear to be maybe under the age of 15 and I'm like really excited to create a special invitation. If you're not feeling shy, if you have any questions whatsoever, um, I always love to, when there are people who are much younger than me in the audience, to just offer up, if you have anything you want to ask about being an artist. Or you, could send, you could send your mom up with the, um, with the question. <laughs> that was my favorite strategy. No, okay, all right, that's okay. Sorry to put you on the spot.
0: (laughs) Hi everybody, I'm just gonna, one thing you, sort of the elephant in the room um,
2: that is more in the news than any of the more important issues I think you've discussed today is inclusion in shows. Are women visible? Do women have enough power in, uh, in the art world? How do we get more power? why this maybe is a
3: moment of more attention to other in the art world than there's been in a long time in a more, with more historical
2: grounding maybe, Uh, but that's gonna change, we all know. Uh, So I'm just interested if, you don't need to go into great detail, but if you have any thoughts on that.
4: Um, Thank you for that question. I suppose I'm, this is a big, complicated question. I think I'm of a few minds at the same time. Um, one is that it seems like there's been a lot of visibility. There's increased visibility around certain, um, you know, historically uh, marginalized groups being parts of exhibitions, being included in exhibitions. Um, and that seems to be, you know, a, bit, a big theme right now. Personally, you know, I think Hyperallergic published some research saying that things have not really changed in terms of um, museum collections and the actual change, basically. So, you know, it seems on the one hand what we're looking at is um, the appearance of change being very visible and very shortly underneath the surface, there's really not a lot of change. The other thing that uh, always comes to mind when I hear about I mean, there's so many different identities and communities we can talk about that could be brought into this conversation, but when we talk about women specifically, I found myself recently seeing, you know, a lot of support for women artists, women organizations, women, you know, things like that, but I always think to myself, well, what, what are we talking about here? Um, What is a woman now, today, you know, and so that's... Kind of where my mind goes and so I'm sort of of two minds where I think I'd like a less surface level type of change not so much visibility but I also um, think that everyone could benefit from interrogating a little bit harder on on womanhood itself.
3: One of the words that you mentioned was was change and when I think about change it may sound like a cliche but change has to come from the inside and so this outward facing visibility is wonderful but for true sustainability we need to see that reflected in the people who sit on boards of institutions the people who curate shows so without that happening it it does feel like lip service and so that's something that I am very mindful of when I think of the future, and we are beginning to see that change. But when an institution is set up without that in mind originally, then it's going to take time for that to be reflected from the inside. I mean, and it goes back to the core values of an institution. I don't know that I could really add to that.
2: I think, agreed, agreed.
1: Yeah, same. I think on a day where it is the Women's March, it's a very salient question. Um, And I think the thing that stands out to me is, as someone who's, you know, studied art history and studied the different waves of feminism as they've been labeled... My hope is that we just, we cannot let this be the last wave. It's A wave is something that comes and passes, right? It crashes, and then something else happens. And I think that um, that's always been a really problematic way to characterize feminism in this country and in general. And um, I think we are at a moment where there's a lot of possibility, but if we don't grasp it and we don't sustain the work and keep pushing, then it's going to have another downslide so because of what erica said because none of the institutions in which we work were founded with those ideals i shouldn't say none certainly some of them nowadays absolutely but um for the ones that have been around for a long time and the ones that have really framed what art and culture means in this country It's a lot of an uphill battle. we got a lot of work still to do, so um, my hope is that the momentum just doesn't shift, but I do think that I'm also of two minds in terms of how we characterize that movement and that work. Um, It can be beneficial to specifically call out when you have a universally woman-identified panel Um, it can also be minimizing, like any category. So I think we just have to be aware of that and be careful around uh, where we allow that to give us power and where we allow that to minimize our power.
2: Um,
1: Something just came to me about your
2: fractional ownership question. It's not the answer you're looking for, but it's the answer I'm more interested in. And it's um, that the kind of ownership I would like to see, or fractional ownership, is... In the responsibility of, um, of being an artist in the first place, what happens is that there's some of us who take up the calling because either we can't do anything else, doing anything else drives us mad. Um, we know that we have to make work and that's how we communicate, right? Um, and then you have a segment of the population that maybe wants to, but feels a lot of stigma around it. Um, like Erica was talking about, because we don't value it on quite the same levels, these other types of professions. And then other folks are like, oh, yeah, I'm not really creative, but, you know, I like looking at whatever. And actually, I would love to work towards a world wherein everyone has some sort of basic responsibility to be able to have a creative fluency in something. Maybe you play the violin. Maybe you write poems. Maybe you're a philosopher. It doesn't really matter. But when you have a society like that, then the arts are naturally cared for. So long as we see it as something that exists, um, that other people are responsible for creating culture, it will always be marginalized, right? So I'm actually really grateful for the presence of um, y'all. Hi. Um, (laughs) Over there, because it's a reminder to me that we have to also look at our schools and the types of arts education we have there, and why aren't we having deeper conceptual conversations about art in the fifth and sixth grade? You know what I mean? Earlier and earlier. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Um, I know I have those. My niece is six, and I, I've been. I'm the like you know artist auntie, and I've been having those conversations with her already, and so it's. Um, That's the world I want to work toward, and that's where we'll get that kind of equitable distribution, I think.
1: Amen to that. I love that. I
2: agree.
1: Perfect note to end on, I think. Um, Thank you so much to Indira, to Erica, to Catherine. Again, to Kamal, to Untitled for hosting us, Tracy, Art Table. Thank you, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much.
4: Thank
2: you.